Hello, I'm your host, Vlad Yunusov. This episode is supported by my law practice. Once in a while, I record the show for you. I love it, but my day job is commercial litigation, and I've been doing it for 12 years. I'd like you to know that your referrals are safe with me. You can find my contact information on my website at lotzio.ca. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is another episode of the Unisolve Question, a YouTube show and podcast about lawyers. And today we have a very special guest. I have here Justice Lauren Sawson of the Court of Appeal for Ontario with me. Uh, Justice Sawson, good morning. Ula, thanks for uh, having me. And uh, I'm uh, a fan of the podcast and the uh, terrific lawyers uh, and uh, and leaders in the justice community that you've been uh, getting to know and uh, it's a privilege uh, to uh, uh, to be asked to join you. I really appreciate it, Justice. So my, uh, my first question is really going to be about your origin story, about where you come from. Uh, are you from Toronto or Montreal? So I'm from uh, Toronto and, uh, you know, what was a a very uninteresting origin story uh, over the evolution of Toronto has, I think, become uh, uh, more rare, and that's someone who not only grew up in Toronto and uh, was born here, but whose parents were born here, uh, whose grandparents on, on one side uh, here as well, and my children uh, uh, were born here, so my children are now fifth generation Toronto, and uh, it's come to be uh, quite a rare day to run into someone else uh, uh, who uh, has that same sense of uh, place. Now, again, it may be a lack of imagination of on my part and uh, my family's part to uh, stay rooted here, but uh, that sense of connection to Toronto, I've come to really value and it's become more important over uh, time. And uh, it's a kind of place easy to take for granted when you grew up here, you go around, uh, see some of the world and you start to appreciate just what a remarkable uh, community and uh, environment uh, it really is. Uh, where in Toronto did you grow up? What neighborhood? So I grew up uh, in uh, Midtown. Uh, my family originally uh, was in the Bathurst and College uh, area, Kensington Market uh, before that. And then there was a migration to that Bathurst and Eglinton uh, kind of um, uh, zone by the time uh, I was growing up. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, in a move that uh, the older generation couldn't quite fathom, when I was looking for my first apartments, I went back to Bathurst and College and uh, uh, had a place on uh, on Markham as my first apartment and uh, got to know uh, that area with a whole new generation and uh, have really um, uh, loved exploring different parts of the uh, city ever since and uh, families spread out to uh, all corners of it. Uh, and it's, uh, again, a place that really feels part of uh, part of me and part of my story. Who were your parents? So uh, the uh, my mother's um, uh, just um, uh, passed away in 2019. Uh, my father uh, uh, is uh, happily uh, uh, still with us, uh, retired uh, down in Costa Rica. But they were, um, you know, a product of their uh, time and uh, uh, and place. Uh, uh, my father was involved in 
uh, running uh, some uh, small businesses and uh, my mother was a school teacher and uh, it was a you know a very I think uh, reflective uh, uh, growing up of, uh, of Toronto of that era of the Jewish community uh, in particular in that sense of being insiders and outsiders uh, in a uh, in a growing uh, city and uh, in a changing country so it's something again that you don't sense when you're going through it so much as when you're reflecting back on it. But it was, uh, again, an, an important uh, uh, sort of place to start for me, a point of departure in my understanding of, uh, uh, of uh, the world around me. And uh, again, it's something I've come to really uh, to value, having a, a big family, most of whom are in the GTA, is something, again, I don't uh, uh, take for granted for a moment. Is your father proud of you? Have you measured up to his expectations being a judge of the Court of Appeal now? Well, you know, it's uh, never, never for, uh, uh, for, uh, for the, the kid to say, but they've been, uh, uh, the whole family, including uh, uh, parents, of course, have been uh, super uh, supportive uh, uh, over the years. But, uh, but also, you know, it was uh, a sense of wanting uh, children to fulfill uh, everything they could uh, they could do and be in a sense that that, uh, you know, was not, um, uh, you know, something that had limits imposed uh, by the outside. And again, I've, in my roles, have seen so many families where uh, that isn't the ethos, where limits are uh, there from outside imposed in, sometimes from uh, inside as well. Uh, and I, uh, you know, I've really, again, seen uh, uh, how valuable it is to have that family support and uh, how, uh, again, you can't assume it's there. And uh, when it's not, it just imposes so many additional barriers and uh, burdens for people. So I'm, uh, I'm lucky on that count as well. Uh, did you choose McGill for your undergrad because it's an excellent university or because you wanted independence and you wanted to move away? No, it was uh, like, like many uh, more the latter than the former. It was a chance to be uh, uh, starting, uh, uh, you know, my own life to be in an exciting uh, place, uh, which Montreal was and is. And uh, and I remember coming, you know, uh, my grandfather, I think, um, uh, sat me down. He'd run a dress shop on Bloor for 40 years uh, after emigrating uh, here from a small, uh, small town in Poland. And he couldn't understand it because there was a university right here and I could live at home and save money. Uh, and still get an education, why would I want to go to Montreal and have to have the expense of finding a place and and so on. And so I realized it was a hard thing to explain that sense of wanting uh, independence uh, along with an education, but McGill provided uh, provided both. Why policy for your major? You know, I think uh, from uh, uh, an early point in time, figuring out uh, those relationships of uh, of power, of who makes decisions over uh, whom and what impact those decisions uh, have. Those dynamics were always interesting to me. Uh, it was, uh, of course, a lively time in, uh, uh, in politics. This is in the uh, you know, late 1970s, early 1980s. It's a time of change and uh, foment. And uh, so I felt uh, very engaged uh, by that. Although, uh, you know, it was um, also still exploring what, uh, you know, what was going to be the, the passion that uh, would be uh, to be pursued. So it wasn't like I started off and said, 
you know, I really want to be a policy expert or a lawyer or a, uh, you know, a person in government. It was really a time when, because tuition was low and time seemed to not be quite so compressed and intense, the question was what's interesting and uh, what, what grabs you? And again, I've seen that evolution in, uh, in the lives of post-secondary students where it's become so much more focused and intense and with so much more pressure that when I look back, uh, it, you know, you, you uh, kind of fell into things more than pursued them with a laser-like focus in many cases. And that was certainly uh, so in my case. You are married to Julia Hanningsburg, one of the leading healthcare administrators in the country. She's president and CEO of Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital here in Toronto. Uh, first of all, I think she also went to McGill, correct? No, she uh, absolutely went to McGill, both undergrad and law. And I was going to say not just went there, but was uh, a poster child of McGill. She uh, ran everything, was editor-in-chief of the Law Journal, was a, a leader in... Uh, uh, in law school in, uh, in many facets and was, has a passion for the university that's uh, continued on various committees. And uh, she grew up in Montreal and really embodies uh, uh, so much of uh, what's special about that uh, you know, university and uh, community. And yet she's uh, embraced all things Toronto and uh, has had uh, terrific roles at uh, some great uh, institutions here, including uh, a uh, long stint um, as general counsel and vice president at uh, Ryerson and uh, and now, as you said, at Holland Bloorview. Did you meet her in Montreal? If you did, it would be very romantic. Uh, it would, and we actually did overlap um, uh, in uh, in studies at McGill, but no, we met in a another uh, city known for romance uh, here in Canada, and that's uh, Ottawa. Uh, <laughs> while we were uh, clerks um, at the Supreme Court uh, of Canada, it was a uh, a really terrific experience uh, from a career perspective, uh, but of course for us, the much more meaningful uh, connection was finding each other and uh, went off uh, from uh, Ottawa to uh, graduate school in New York and, uh, and then moved back to Toronto. I wanna ask you a few questions about being uh, an academic and being a, a lawyer, being a judge, and I want to acknowledge help from Andrew Bernstein of Tories who helped me prepare some of these uh, questions. You uh, practiced law at a law firm uh, who was a predecessor of BLG, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. It was uh, Borden and Elliott at the time and uh, was to become a BLG. Okay. And uh, you uh, were a litigator, uh, according to the bio on the Court of Appeal website. And then you switched to academia at some point. Explain that transition. What uh, took you down that path? Well, you know, I had uh, done um, a lot of the preparatory work for my academic career actually before going to law school. I was already in a, a PhD program and had done um, uh, significant work towards a dissertation. And so, you know, entered law school um, uh, not quite straight through in the way that. Uh, many people did. So I already had an academic uh, hunger, if I can put it that way, a, a real sense of uh, wanting to finish that uh, journey. And I did finish uh, the doctorate as I was uh, completing uh, law school uh, as well. So uh, it wasn't um, out of the blue to keep that career in mind, but I really uh, also wanted to explore life in practice and uh, the litigation group I joined at BLG had some 
uh, terrific luminaries uh, there. It was led by Dennis O'Connor, uh, subsequently um, uh, Associate Chief Justice and uh, a member of the Court of Appeal. But at the time he uh, ran a public law litigation group uh, with a number of others, um, uh, including uh, Freya Christensen now on the Superior Court, uh, uh, Chris Brett, uh, Benjamin Gluestein now on the Superior Court, um, uh, many others. So uh, it was a, a terrific place to learn uh, litigation and a terrific uh, place to start um, uh, that career. But then an opportunity uh, came uh, because of a, a contract. So just to fill in for someone for uh, a year or two and uh, join uh, Osgoode Hall Law School and the Department of Political Science at York. It was a shared position uh, came up in, uh, I think it was around uh, 97. So a couple of years into my practice. And I thought, you know, if I'm ever gonna have a chance to explore that academic uh, side of life, this was the opportunity to do it but didn't uh, necessarily think it would be the end of legal practice, just uh, wanted to uh, try to build in as much experience, squeeze as much from the opportunities uh, as I could. And, uh, and so uh, took, uh, took that plunge. And of course, it, one thing leads to another and uh, uh, a full-time position uh, ensued and uh, an academic career that I feel very fortunate to have uh, uh, been at the, the right place and the right time to, to be able to take advantage of. I believe your academic career spanned a couple of decades, if my math is correct. That's right. Yeah. And is, is, do you find that this long experience as an academic helps be, being a judge of the Court of Appeal? Is being a judge on the Court of Appeal similar to being an academic, more similar so than being a judge of the Superior Court. And for the audience, you, you actually were a judge of the Superior Court before being a judge of the Court of Appeal. No, absolutely. And in fact, uh, you know, when you uh, take that other plunge and uh, submit an application, uh, you know, you tick uh, typically all the all the boxes for any kind of judicial uh, path that is uh, uh, that is open. And uh, and for me, at that point, the idea of another learning curve, another uh, set of uh, challenges was particularly, uh, uh, you know, uh, interesting and uh, attractive. And, and of course, the life of a Superior Court judge uh, is focused on uh, exploring legal principles and ideas, but also really seeing that fact-finding, problem-solving, decision-making uh, role. And what uh, bridged those two experiences for me, and I do, just to come to your question, think that being an academic is excellent uh, preparation for judicial life of, of all kinds uh, and, and an excellent preparation for, uh, for a lot of other roles because you are constantly put in the position of uh, reflecting on uh, core principles, thinking about uh, how, uh, how uh, people are affected by, by law, for example, in ways that if you're a busy litigator, you may not always have those moments to reflect on uh, the, the bigger picture, the systemic uh, uh, kind of influences and, and impacts in a way that academics can. But of course, if academics are untethered to those realities of what's happening in, in courtrooms in law offices and people's lives, then I think they're not as effective uh, as academics as they could be. So the style of academic life that I really uh, cherished and tried to pursue was one of being engaged in those realities throughout the, the legal system, throughout the uh, 
the many walks of, uh, of practice uh, that our students pursued, uh, and again, where the ideas about law were coming from, uh, a really diverse and disparate uh, set of places in our society. So for me, the, the bridge was really administrative law and administrative justice, being able to participate on a number of administrative uh, tribunals. So seeing that connection between adjudication and, and impact and seeing ideas in, in action, uh, that was really important. Getting to know, of course, uh, some terrific lawyers and uh, administrative uh, uh, leaders uh, in, the, in the justice community was was a was a terrific uh, exposure and uh, and seeing that sense of engagement uh, in some shared uh, enterprises. So uh, for me, the academic life and the life in practice, life in uh, adjudication, uh, these were shading into each other in ways that I felt very uh, uh, again uh, lucky to have the opportunity to uh, to be exposed to, and I think it made me uh, better in each of those roles to have seen the other perspectives. As you I said, the, uh, I hope that answers the question that uh, uh, you posed. But the, the short answer, of course, is yes. I think uh, uh, this pathway to, to judicial life is, uh, uh, you know, is uh, is one that uh, has a lot of important uh, uh, connections and ways to prepare for uh, for the role and enrich the role. Yes, and I want to highlight this for the audience. So you, uh, before you served as a judge of the Superior Court and I think you served as a judge for, of the Superior Court of Justice in Ontario for two years. Right. Before that, you served as, in, as vice chair of Health Professions Appeal and Review Board for 12 years. That's right. It's actually the Health Professions Appeal and Review Board and the Health Services Appeal and Review Board, which are related but two separate right. uh, tribunals and had the good fortune to be part of uh, both of them over that, uh, that long period. So you, uh, of course, are known for your expertise in administrative law. And I have to say that if, uh, if I turn, you will probably recognize this, <laughs> this volume. And I didn't bring it here just before the interview. It, it just sits there since day one because I used it in law school. I went to Osgood. And of course, you know, parts of, the, of this book are outdated now. We know how quickly administrative law uh, uh, develops. And I'm talking, uh, just for those listening, I'm talking about administrative law in context, which Justice Austin uh, co-authored with Colleen Flood. Uh, but I want to ask you about the administrative tribunal that uh, where you served. Uh, this is also a fact-finding body. Well, what it does, um, uh, and the, the two uh, tribunals had slightly different mandates. The Health Services Board really focused on uh, those um, uh, who uh, had decisions by OHIP, uh, for example, not to fund certain services out of the country or experimental, and they were uh, challenging typically decisions by OHIP. The other was reviewing the decisions by all the health colleges uh, and self-governing uh, health professions to uh, uh, not refer things on to discipline or to uh, make... Um, uh, some uh, remedies that were short of what uh, aggrieved parties wanted, or in some cases uh, went too far and health professionals wanted to challenge uh, those decisions. So it wasn't fact-finding in that sense of uh, building evidence from the, the ground up. It was reviewing a record, reviewing decisions, uh, and sitting in panels of three, so collaborative uh, 
uh, work as well. And, and of course, the main insight um, that I drew is understanding that uh, statutory mandate, understanding the impact of these disputes on the, the parties involved. Typically, uh, you wouldn't have both parties represented. Sometimes one uh, would be the health professional, you know, more typically. Uh, but uh, dealing with access to justice issues, dealing with, uh, again, the impact of these disputes on people's lives, why uh, they matter so much, and seeing that administrative justice system in action were, uh, uh, were again, uh, really important uh, uh, areas of exposure for, for me to understand the field that I also studied and taught in of administrative law, and to get a better understanding of of the justice system and uh, its its limits and possibilities. Well, then, please talk about the uh, transition from the from serving on the tribunal in its with its unique role, unique unique context, unique specialized context. Uh, to serving on the Superior Court, which is a court of general uh, jurisdiction, and you he started hearing all kinds of cases from all walks of life. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's an entirely uh, uh, different uh, role, and I think we sometimes do a disservice to tribunals when we see them as kind of court light, uh, somehow, you know, measuring them against uh, courts as if that's the, uh, the standard, and deviations from the standard are, are somehow uh, you know, lesser than or not as rigorous as uh, I think of the judicial role as uh, uh, really a, a, a very different uh, uh, kind of uh, space for adjudication, different, uh, of course, um, expectations on decision makers, tribunals, you'll often have, uh, as we did, a number of legally trained uh, members and a number of non-legally trained members. And of course, in a judicial context, there's that shared um, education and, and background. So uh, fact-finding, of course, uh, uh, was, as we were saying, one of the uh, really signature roles that uh, Superior Court judges play. And I was both uh, active in the uh, civil team and the family uh, team in the Toronto region. And uh, so really had a, a great opportunity to see between motions and trials and case management, uh, all the aspects of uh, the litigation process again, the possibilities and uh, and limits of of what happens in our courts and uh, and it was a terrific learning curve uh, for me just because what you don't have when you're an academic is that sense of the choreography of the courtroom. Uh, you know who stands when, what gets said uh, at a given time. It had been, of course, a long time since I was in courtrooms on a regular basis. Uh, so once appointed. Uh, just coming to understand those uh, ways of uh, uh, of getting at the ideas and and solving the problems and uh, what uh, uh, you know what kind of advocacy was going to be effective, what kind of courtroom uh, atmosphere I wanted to um, uh, to create and to to maintain. Those were all really important areas of the transition, and I loved the experience and uh, really uh, valued all the contributions of council and uh, parties and court staff in, uh, in making that uh, uh, such a, uh, a rich place for, uh, for me to do that learning. Uh, what was one thing about 
switching to the Court of Appeal, about uh, your transition to the Court of Appeal that surprised you about the Court of Appeal. Of course, you uh, understood the Court of Appeal before. You know or you knew what the Court of Appeal was. But when you actually entered it, when you became part of the Court of Appeal, what was one thing that really surprised you that you learned about the Court of Appeal that you didn't really think of prior to being a judge of the Court of Appeal? Well, you know, I think uh, what is um, uh, striking about that uh, that environment uh, for um, uh, for for those who again have had the uh, uh, the opportunity to to be a part of it is is just the intense collegiality, the uh, intense sense of uh, a shared um, uh, pursuit, uh, not just of uh, particular cases, particular panels, uh, but of um, uh, of wanting to. Uh, really bring out the the best in each other. So uh, lots of mentorship, lots of uh, people uh, who are experts, gurus uh, in their field, incredibly generous to uh, to share their thinking, to share uh, their experience, and uh, and you know people who've been on the court for a few months, people who've been on the court for a couple of decades, uh, really acting um, uh, in uh, in supportive ways for each other and in a sense that I was uh, really struck by and, and I've been, of course, uh, uh, very grateful for. You clerk for uh, Chief Justice Lemaire. That's right. And uh, he once said, according to Andrew Bernstein, who helped me with this question, and of course he also clerked uh, at the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, he once said that the hardest thing about judging is to decide, do you agree with him and what do you do when you have a hard time making up your mind? Well, look, I think uh, that, first of all, that's absolutely uh, right. And, and for some people, you know, they, their challenge is um, uh, the writing up of decisions. For others, it's the uh, piecing together all the evidence or the submissions or the advocacy. But at, at the end of the day, uh, that is the, uh, the quintessential role that is expected of a, of a judge. And, uh, you know, some would say uh, you've got to learn to paint fences before you do uh, elaborate portraits. Uh, you've got to uh, keep your eyes focused on, on, on the work you need. So it's not just deciding, but deciding in a timely way, deciding in a well-reasoned way, uh, deciding in a, in a way that can be uh, defended. And that is... Uh, proportionate to what's going on around you to take a case that people need an answer in a in a few weeks and decide to make it your magnum opus for uh, for a few months is not an effective kind of decision making. Um, so I think uh, having been in that tribunal world in those academic worlds uh, and of course uh, in some administrative uh, capacities as well um, in universities where uh, you see the importance of, uh, of decisions of finality of being able to move forward, uh, gave me a real sense of the importance of, of deciding. And, um, uh, and again, uh, it's not to say I'm not often challenged uh, with great arguments on, on both sides or uh, seeing the implications as a real uh, uh, difficult uh, uh, shoals to navigate between. But I rely on the fact that there are some uh, important touchstones for judges to, uh, to look to. So for example, at the Court of Appeal, uh, the deference to uh, uh, judge below who's already had a chance to see the evidence, the record, the issues. Um, you're, you're never starting from, from scratch. You're always looking at 
what another judge has done. So in this regard, I have a question about the relationship between the justice system and the law and the rest of the society. You were exposed to all tiers of our justice system, the tribunals, the superior court, the court of appeal. And of course, you are a prolific writer and uh, being a judge is essentially being a prolific writer. You have to write reasons. And being a lawyer is parsing these reasons and telling clients what the law actually is and how it might apply to the facts of this particular client. In the reality of the modern world, is this system the best and the only system of telling members of society what the law is uh, is it really the only way for us to do it? Is it really the only way for people to uh, plan uh, their uh, conduct, plan their affairs, uh, where they have to go to lawyers and then lawyers have to go to texts and parse them and then tell clients, well, on the facts of that case that this judge decided, this was the outcome. This is how your uh, facts are similar or different. So I predict that the judge will probably say this or that and, and so on and so forth. Is this, this is the only system that we have? Is there any other alternative that you pondered? Is this because we are a common law country? Are, are you familiar with other uh, systems in the world or is this the best that uh, the world can offer today and you know what it's not that bad looking at some other countries you know when you were talking about how fortunate we are that we live here right no I think we can uh, absolutely uh, do better and need to do better and and part of it uh, again I saw uh, through the uh, the law school and legal education experience I think we for too long have viewed the value add of lawyers as complexifiers, as people who see the, uh, you know, what's written, uh, parsing the words, parsing between the lines, looking for precision, looking at all of the perspectives that can be brought to language, which leads to more sophistication, more adjectives, more, uh, more search for precision. Uh, but there's no reason why lawyers can't be adding value as simplifiers, as people who are able to uh, cut through the complexity make more transparent and accessible the relationships that matter. Uh, but again, I think it hasn't been the model for ascribing that value to lawyers. So in, uh, in, uh, in law school, we've really moved from uh, how to be a, a kind of artisan of complexity uh, to how to be a problem solver and the adoption of problem solving curriculums of seeing law in action through clinical placements, through uh, working with clients from the very outset uh, rather than assuming, you know, that uh, parsing appellate uh, uh, judgments is the, the high point of legal analysis, it's working, uh, or it ought to be working with people to solve the problems that matter most to them, and then building a, a set of principles from that experience. That's really the common law's claim, uh, I think, to being a, 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 a both functional and just system. Uh, civil law, of course, is the, just give me a moment, uh, 
civil uh, law is, of course, the law something like three-fifths of the world lives under, and it's got claims uh, to why it is an effective system. Uh, but again, I think some of those claims uh, are evolving uh, as well as the civil system moves to try to modernize and try to update uh, its uh, claims to having uh, order and consistency. Uh, and again, the common law has never sought out order and consistency. It sought out uh, evolution through experience. So each system, I think, uh, has its important uh, claims. And of course, we're both coming to learn more about Indigenous systems of law and uh, alternative approaches to problem solving that hopefully will give us a greater insight into how to improve and continue to evolve uh, the system we have, but absolutely simplification uh, and adding value by solving problems is something we don't focus on enough. And, uh, you know, whether it's civil procedure rules or uh, court forms or other access to justice barriers, we're never going to solve these problems by simply throwing more people and more resources into the existing mix unless we change some of those fundamental principles along the way as well. Again, from complexity to simplicity, uh, from additional steps and barriers to uh, much more immediate access. And I think new generations of law students and lawyers uh, are going to lead the way. Do you think we uh, found the right balance between uh, the simplicity of bright line rules and uh, treating every case as different uh, and as deserving to be uh, examined from the point of view of justice of that case? Uh, do you think we should have more bright lines or do you think there is a potential for injustice? And then if uh, some people call uh, that injustice, then others might respond to that and say, if people have enough notice of the bright line rule, and then they still allow for, uh, for circumstances to arise where uh, they will find themselves in breach, regardless of the particular facts of, of a particular case, it's still not injustice and we should go for the simplicity of the bright line rule. Uh, and then of course, there are different examples of bright line rules. For example, in civil procedure, administrative dismissals that uh, occur when a certain amount of time has passed, where a very specific facts uh, that are very simple and that uh, uh, registrars are authorized to uh, adjudicate a rise. And then, then there was another example with a dental uh, hygienist in Ontario who lost his license because he treated his wife recently, maybe a, a couple of years ago. And then the Court of Appeal said, sorry, it's a bright line rule. And the, the, the justice of the case argument was made there was no harm done, arguably, but the Court of Appeal said, sorry, the legislature says so, so we can't do anything. It's a bright line rule. But then the, when lawyers expect a, a bright line rule to be applied in other cases, then justice of the case considerations arise sometimes, and uh, there is an unexpected result. Uh, sorry if this is a little bit of a, of a rambling question. No, I think uh, it's, a, question, it's a, terrific, but... uh, a terrific question, Flat, and I think the... Uh... You know the tension that you're uh, reflecting and how you're you're casting the question is is also part of the answer that uh, that tension is an important one not to ever see as settled or static. Uh, we've seen this, for example, in uh, some of the debates around mandatory uh, minimum sentences uh, coming out of legislatures and then being challenged in courts. 
and and you know I think the general rule of thumb in my experience is there's about an you know that 80 20 rule that in 80% of the cases and not only are bright lines appropriate but they need to be rigorously enforced to give certainty and simplicity to how people govern their lives in the 20% and of course the numbers don't always uh, add up uh, that and you know imposition of the bright line will do real injustice uh, and the reason for the bright line isn't apparent in in the circumstances of that case and uh, the justice of the case needs to have some uh, some attention, or if we're going to close off the justice of the case, it needs to be a, a very narrow subset of, uh, of, of context where that's the case. So I think that 80-20 rule generally applies, but you've got to get both sides right. In other words, you've got to be rigorous on the 80 in order to free up the time and uh, space to uh, focus on those uh, contextual facets, the justice of the case facets in the 20. Uh, if you're looking at the justice of the case in all 100, uh, then it's going to grind to a halt. Uh, and similarly, um, uh, over time, I think you start to, to get some predictability to when that 20% uh, uh, needs to, uh, to be in place and what role uh, judges need to have to, to explore. But uh, rather than look to, sol to solve that, or find the solution to it, I think the journey uh, to discuss it, to debate it, to what's your 80 versus my 20, uh, that to me is a sign of a vibrant and healthy legal system. And we accept that we don't have resources to, uh, uh, nor would it be fair to make uh, uh, the system uh, uh, so complex and take so long that it does that kind of justice in every case at the expense of, of ever being able to move on with your life. Uh, and similarly, that we we don't have any tolerance for the injustices that bright line rules uh, may uh, may impose in in some of those very uh, rare cases. So I, I think the debate's a healthy one, uh, and I, I've seen uh, some real uh, uh, reason for optimism uh, in sorting out uh, the uh, distinction between the two and proportionality as a as a kind of big theme of the justice system in the last. 10, 15 years uh, is I think emblematic of trying to, to get that right. And also not having a one size fits all approach to problem solving, that there is a way to customize, to make uh, people uh, and their problems and their needs, something to which the justice system responds, not just the convenience of uh, the institutions and uh, you know, the, uh, the way the rules have, have played out over time. Well, we just discussed a uh, fairly comp uh, complex topic, and of course, there's a lot of complexity in the practice of law in adjudication. So imagine a young lawyer who is appearing at the Court of Appeal for the first time in her life or in his life, and they are aware of this complexity. They're scared, probably. Uh, they don't know much yet about how actually complex things are. So what would your tip for such a lawyer be who is appearing at the Court of Appeal for the first time and who is a little bit nervous? What would your tip for them be? Yeah, no, first of all, I think it's a... Uh... Uh, great to see uh, the new generation and new voices of an increasingly, uh, you know, uh, energetic and diverse profession uh, come into their own in that setting. Uh, but not everyone has uh, the, the networks and resources to do that with confidence and, uh, and support. So the advice I always give is never 
uh, be on your own and never think of yourself on your own. That uh, whether through uh, some of the legal organizations and uh, networks coming out of uh, law school or shared interests, there's always a, a group not only that you can go to, but who would be uh, welcome the opportunity to, to you know, uh, pick up the phone or be on the other end of a DM or a, uh, an email and uh, share their experience of what to expect. Uh, be a sounding board, do a mock, uh, uh, you know, mock up of your submissions, get get feedback. So that sense of I'm on my own and I'm uh, overwhelmed, I think, is uh, is a terrible experience and an avoidable one. Uh, and that tradition of mentorship, of support, of building community, especially where some council are not, you know, in settings where that's already built into their firms or their uh, practice life, uh, is hugely important. It's where I think. Uh, uh, the uh, the legal community uh, uh, here has, uh, you know, in its best traditions, uh, done extremely well. And we know it's incomplete. We know some uh, communities get called on more than others to do that mentorship, and uh, it's an extra uh, burden and challenge. So I think it's not just a, a good news story. I think it's it's an important tip, but but it's a tip of an iceberg of uh, the need to build that community, provide that support. Uh, and make sure we do welcome that new generation into the courthouse in a uh, in a way that doesn't um, uh, you know uh, replicate some of those uh, conditions of exclusion that we know have been present in the past. Justice Austin, I want to thank you for this interview. I want to thank our judiciary for being open to the profession, for being open to the public. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much. It was great having you today. The pleasure. Uh, thanks uh, for the opportunity. Look forward to continuing discussions. Uh, and uh, thanks for including the judiciary in, uh, in the podcast and in the conversation.